Pastor Dave picked the music for that intro video, and I feel like he's establishing an expectation for something to happen that's not going to happen this morning. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you all this morning. It's great to be standing here and uh, not preaching to an empty room. That's what happened last time I was up here, and uh, it's great to have you all joining us online for uh, this worship service. Uh, but these last few weeks, you know, we've gone on this amazing journey through these sermon series. We, we looked at a series of, of, of transitioning from surviving to thriving. And then last week, Pastor Karen uh, led us through a, a teaching from Psalms about finding rest and peace in the midst of, of chaos and, and uncertainty. And, you know, thrive and rest and peace, those are all amazing uh, descriptions of the kind of life that Jesus wants for us. Jesus said in John 10, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. And he wants us to have this full life, this life in which we are content. And it's a true lasting contentment that he wants for us. And honestly, Jesus equips us to experience that content kind of life. But I don't know about you, maybe you can relate to this. As I listened to these messages over these last several weeks, I said multiple times, I want that. I want that. But why is it so hard? Why does it seem so far out of reach or why does it seem so elusive for me to experience those things? It, it seems to me lately that just when I think I'm going to, to move beyond a place of, of survival to thriving or move beyond uh, exhaustion to rest or move beyond fear to peace, it's like I take two steps backward and I just start the process all over again. Anybody else relate to that right now? That seems to be what's going on for me anyway. And I just wonder why is that? Why is it so hard to experience this? Why does there always seem to be something in the way keeping me from walking in step with that content life that Jesus wants for me? We'll wrestle with those questions a little bit, but we're going we're gonna to look at someone in Scripture who, who by all accounts had everything together. King Solomon had everything figured out. He had anything anyone could ever possibly want. He had acquired all that the world offered him. And, and he seems to have everything Together, he had every reason to be content. Let's let's explore this a little bit. If you have your Bibles, open to to First Kings chapter ten. The words will be on screen for you if you don't have your Bibles with you this morning. But before we do that, I want to invite us to bow our heads, close our eyes. Let's go to God in prayer. Prepare our hearts for the reading of His Word this morning. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, I thank you so much that we get to gather here in person, that we can gather online with technology, Lord. And God, I just thank you so much for all the ways that we can access your word through traditional old-fashioned printed Bibles or apps on our phone. It doesn't matter, Lord. We can access your word every single day throughout each day. And your word is as impactful today as it was when it was originally uh, put to paper. And, and Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would um, bless us through your word. Teach us, challenge us, transform us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this encounter that happens between King Solomon and someone else. And, and, and through this, we, we get a glimpse of just what King Solomon had. It says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, 
his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, it's true, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So through this interaction, we we get this this idea of of who Solomon was. He was the world-renowned king, the son of David, and his reputation of being the wisest and wealthiest ruler had spread throughout all the land. So far that the queen of Sheba decided she had to go see it for herself. She wanted to see if all this that she heard was true. Now, Sheba was a nation somewhere in the southwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula. It's believed to uh, encompass what is today Ethiopia and even parts of Egypt. And Sheba, it was widely known that this kingdom uh, was, was known for its gold and its spices. Sheba was known as a wealthy nation. Now, the queen of Sheba, there's some mystery surrounding her true identity. There's a lot of history behind it, a lot of speculation. We're not going to get into that too much today. But I want to point out that in a time in history when most, when most often women were considered second-class citizens, that any woman who could uh, ascend to a place of being in rulership and authority over men, over an entire nation, must have been a woman of, of amazing wisdom, amazing insight, amazing influence. So she was a special lady, this queen of Sheba. And we know she must have been extremely wise and powerful, and we get this sense from her based on the reasons for her visit. Her primary goal in visiting Solomon was to test his wisdom. Verse 1 says she comes to test him with hard questions. The Hebrew word there, it actually translates as riddles. So she came prepared with riddles. She, she came ready to disprove his wisdom. She wanted to outwit the wisest man in the world. And then her second goal seems to be to outmatch the wealth of King Solomon. Verse 2 It says she arrives with a a very great retinue. She comes with a parade of of followers and a a caravan of camels, and she comes with spice and precious gems and gold. Uh, The the gold she has, it weighed like four and a half tons of gold. Can you picture four and a half tons of gold? It's as if she's saying, Solomon, you think you have wealth. Just take a look at all the wealth I have to give away. She's making a, a statement there. But from the outcome, we learn that Solomon is as wise and as wealthy as the rumors suggested. And we know this from her reaction. Her her riddles were no match for him. Her wealth seemed puny compared to everything that Solomon had accumulated. And it says in verse 5 that there was no more breath in her. The queen of Sheba saw all that Solomon had, heard his wisdom, and it literally took her breath away. She was overwhelmed by everything. Now I read this passage, and I don't know about you, but I can't help but think, if I just had just a portion of Solomon's wisdom, if I had just a mere fraction of his wealth, all my problems would go away and I'd be content in life, right? Anything that causes me worry or stress or uncertainty would just go away if I had just a portion of his wisdom and just like, give me like a hundredth of his, of his wealth and I'd be good. 
Or would I? Or would I? Let's take a look at, at Solomon's response to all he had in life. As he, as he reached the end of his life, Solomon began to, to put word to paper and he, and he penned this, this wisdom literature and he wrote something called Ecclesiastes where he put all this wisdom together. And God wants us to learn a valuable lesson that, that Solomon learned. God wants us to learn through him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Now this is Solomon talking about his life. He's looking back on everything he had done and accomplished and this is what he has to say. He writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity." and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So what we see, Solomon's reflecting back, and, and he had pursued and acquired everything that brought him pleasure and happiness. He had pursued possessions and wealth, property, sex, power, authority, anything he wanted, anything the world said, this is what you need to be content and happy in life. Solomon's like, all right, let me get it. And he got his hands on it. He had an abundance of all the world had to offer. And what does he say about it as he reflects back on his life? He says it was all folly. It was all vanity. Listen again to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2 through 11. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I like that imagery he uses. Solomon compares the pursuit of worldly wealth as a source of true lasting contentment to trying to catch the wind. Now picture this. Imagine going to the lake this afternoon, not today because it's raining, but a nice day. You're enjoying a, an afternoon in Kershaw and you see somebody running around and they're, they're reaching out, seemingly grasping at nothing. And out of concern for this obviously troubled individual, you say to them, hey, everything okay? Now imagine getting a response, yeah, everything's fine. I'm just trying to catch some wind today. You think that person was absolutely crazy. There's something wrong with that person. But this is exactly what God is trying to teach us through Solomon. This is exactly what we do when we look to anywhere else besides God for true, lasting contentment. We're grasping at something we can never grab hold of. And then he goes on to say there's nothing to be gained under the sun. What is Solomon saying with that imagery? He's saying that, that compared to God, compared to what God gives us, what God wants for us, what he offers us, there's nothing under the sun, there's nothing on earth 
that even comes close. And this is what we learn from Solomon. What does it mean for us? I think that, that every person on the planet goes through life in pursuit of contentment. I think if you, if you just get down to the base uh, desire that we have, everything we do is inspired, motivated in some way, shape, or form by a desire for contentment. Everything's driven to that. I was talking to someone after last service. They have a little baby. And I said, we're born desiring contentment. You know, feed us, change our diaper, hold us. We're content. When we don't have that, we're screaming crazy because we're not content. There's everything that we, everything we do is, is, is in this pursuit of contentment. And as we grow and get older, this, this pursuit of contentment, I think, leads us to having two predominant views, two predominant ways that we look at life and look to the pursuit of contentment. All right. The first predominant view is a view toward the past. This, this, this view is characterized by belief that, that if things just went back to the way they were, or life was so much easier back then, Right? Have you ever said any of those statements? I've said them pretty recently. There was not long ago I saw a post on Twitter. It was post the last picture from before the pandemic started. And that got me looking through my camera roll at pictures from January and February. And I literally said, as I'm looking through those pictures, life was so much easier back then. Right? When we adopt this view, our pursuit of contentment becomes a futile attempt at recreating the past. It's a futile attempt. The second view is one zeroed in on the future, looking to the future as our source of contentment. This, this, uh, this view is characterized by an if-this-then-that type of belief system and mentality. If this happens, then I'll have more free time. If this happens, then I'll be less stressful. If this happens, then I'll have more money. If this happens, then everything will be okay. You fill in the blank for whatever the this is, but I believe I can, I can guess safely that we all have a this in mind, right? At least one. You're thinking of something that if it just happened, if we just got there, if we just arrived there, then everything would get better. Anybody relate to that? I'm not the only one, right? When we adopt this, this view, our pursuit of contentment becomes endlessly waiting on the arrival of some arbitrary point in the future that's constantly moving and shifting. The dilemma with the, with the view of contentment that's towards the past is that things will never Go back to the way they were. The past will always be in the past. And the dilemma with a view towards the future as a source of contentment is that we'll never arrive there. The future is always in the future. Even if we do happen to arrive at this arbitrary point, guess what? We're focused on the next one, right? I think that's what we tend to do when it comes to pursuing Contentment, when focused solely on some arbitrary point in the future and, and focused on some long gone point in the past, guess what? We always, always, always miss out on what God is doing in the present. We always miss out on what God is doing in the present. And I think that when we strip everything else away, this is where discontentment comes from. Discontentment comes from taking our focus off of God. When our focus is not on God, we'll never thrive. When our focus isn't on God, we'll never know peace. When our focus isn't on God, we'll never know rest. We'll never know true, lasting contentment because God is the ultimate source of that. Now, I think when, when we're not focused on God, when we focus on other things, we, we, we tend to miss two very critical things in life. Right? The first thing that we tend to miss when we're not focused on God is we miss out on present blessings. We miss out on present blessings. 
You read through the life and reign of King Solomon and it becomes quite clear that he was never content with what he had in the present. He was always striving for more, more, and more. There's a statistic about Solomon that's recorded in 1 Kings 11.3 that I think just exemplifies his desire for more. 1 Kings 11.3 says this, Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. That's a staggering, mind-boggling statistic. This man had 1,000 women. I mean, that's, that's the epitome of, of never being content with what you have and always wanting more and more and more. He was looking, one place he looked for contentment was in the arms of women and he never got enough of it. And he had 1,000 women. Now, here's the thing. This is what happens when, we, when we're not focused on God. We, we tend to miss what God wants us to do, and we tend to, to go the path of disobedience because God had said to Abraham or Solomon, don't marry foreign women. He said, find a woman from your homeland who shares your faith. But guess what? Solomon, in his pursuit for more and more and more, it says many of his wives were princesses of foreign nations. And it says his wives turned away his heart. These women led him astray. And Solomon suffered greatly for his disobedience. When we take our focus off of God and what he wants for us, we miss out on all the ways that God blesses us each and every day. There's not a day that goes by that God doesn't bless us in some way, shape, or form. Not a day goes by. Even on the worst day, think of your worst, darkest day, God poured out his blessing on you that day. Earlier this week, I was finishing up my work on this sermon. And when I'm doing sermon prep in my office, I usually do a really good job at, at, not, at ignoring my phone, at ignoring my phone. I usually just don't even pay attention to it. But my phone buzzed, and, and for some reason I picked it up and looked at what the notification was, and I'm really glad I did. It was a message from Becky. She's our office manager here at Crosswinds, and she was forwarding us a message that she had received from our, our uh, representative from the Red Cross. And I just want to share the message that this lady from the Red Cross shared with us. She wrote, good morning, Crosswind staff. The community must be enjoying donating at your church. Our staff collected 37 units, which will impact up to 111 lives. I don't know what we would have done without your support. Since COVID, there has been 285 units collected here at Crosswinds, which equals up to 855 lives. Do you realize that after your next drive, your next blood drive, you will exceed 1,000 lives potentially impacted by your blood drives? You should all be very proud. It's an amazing report from the Red Cross, right? It's an amazing message that we received. And at the time, it was absolutely perfect for me. And I'm going to be honest with you, for me, it was a gut check. It was an absolute gut check. Because the night before, I, my mind went instantly to this. I'm like, all right, God, I get it. The night before, I was complaining to my wife. And I'm going to be completely open and transparent and honest with you this morning. I was complaining to her that I was sick and tired of Sundays. I was saying, I'm so tired of Sundays and having to come in behind people and put three signs in the seats next. I'm tired of it. I'm just tired of it. I wish things would just go back to the way they were. And I know that there's many of you who are sick and tired of us coming up behind you and saying, hey, can you move over and make room for more people? You're sick and tired of us saying, anybody else can be sitting with you? Let's put three signs down. And I know many of us are, are tired of not being able to gather the way in which we used to gather. And I know many of us are tired of having to wear masks. But the gut check was this. The gut check for me was this. I'm too focused on this little stuff. In the grand scheme of things, me having to put signs next to you is little. 
You having to wear a mask is a little thing. Us having to spread out a little bit, it's a little thing in the grand scheme of things. And when we get focused on this, what we're focusing on is a desire for things to go back to where they were, or we're focused on the future where we want this current present reality to be behind us, we're missing out on all the amazing things that God is doing in our presence. That's, that's the gut check that God gave me. I had this realization. I've never needed a blood transfusion in my entire life. Like these thousand people, I've never needed to have blood donated. I've never been in such a situation where I've needed that. That's a blessing. I can get over myself and put signs and seats next to you. I can get over myself and wear a mask because I've never had to experience that. God has protected me from that. And the stuff I have to do, the stuff I have to sacrifice, it doesn't compare to what God has done for me. It doesn't compare to the sacrifices that God made for me. Throughout the whole pandemic, throughout the whole lockdown, we've always had a facility. God has blessed us with a facility that we could open up to the doors of the Red Cross and impact a thousand lives. That's a blessing in the present. That when we focus on, on the way things were or getting to where beyond the things that are now, we miss out on those blessings. When we're not focused on God and his present blessings, we become so easily discontent because we focus instead on things that are no longer going our way or things that seem so far out of reach. That's not what God wants for us. When we're not focused on God, we miss out on present blessings. The second thing, when we're not focused on God, we miss out on present opportunities. We miss out on present opportunities. This is what happened during the Queen of Sheba's visit to Solomon. At the end of her visit, when she had heard all of Solomon's great wisdom and, and she had witnessed the abundance of all his wealth, she said something that, that is pretty important. She says this, she says, your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants. Listen to this, she said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel. Now I read that and, and it seems like something's stirring in her heart. Maybe she's having this conversion experience where she's gonna accept the God of Israel. But culturally, we know that's not what happened. Culturally, we know this is just lip service because there was a thing known as territorial deities or national gods, and it was a very common thing to recognize that this nation or territory had their gods, this nation or territory had their gods, and that was fine. As long as it never conflicted with us, it's fine. And so what, she, what the Queen of Sheba did, when she left Sheba, she left her gods in Sheba, and when she entered Israel, she entered the domain of the God of Israel. And she understood that, and she respected that, and she gave credit to that particular God. Historically, there's no record whatsoever that the Queen of Sheba or that nation ever had any sort of conversion experience. So chances are, when the Queen returned home, the God of Israel went to the back of her mind, she forgot about him, and she started worshiping her own gods again. But beyond what we know culturally and historically, we know that she never accepted God because Jesus talks about this. Jesus writes about the queen of Sheba. There's a, there's a time when, when the Pharisees and religious scribes were pleading with Jesus, saying, show us a sign of your divinity. Give us some proof that you are who you say you are. And Jesus' rebuttal of them was really pretty harsh. He said, he said, essentially, he's like, listen, there are signs everywhere, and my divinity as the Son of God is fully on display. It's greater than anything you've ever seen before. You're just too blind to see it. And it's in this that he talks about the Queen of Sheba. Listen to what he says in Matthew 12, 42. He says, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation 
and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is Jesus saying? This is something puzzling he says about the queen of Sheba. Jesus is painting this picture of the queen of Sheba rising up from the grave on the day of judgment and saying to the people of Israel, I traveled 1,500 miles to see the glory and splendor of Solomon and all the while I was in the presence of the God of Israel and I left in awe of the splendor of Solomon. Why in the world didn't you tell me instead about the splendor of God which surpassed anything that Solomon had? Talk about a missed opportunity. Solomon was so caught up in his own wisdom and wealth that he completely missed the opportunity to point an entire nation of people to God. God is constantly giving us opportunities to glorify him and point others towards him, to let people know about him. He does it for all of us all the time. I think the most effective way that I can share my faith with others is by telling them what God is doing in my life. We all have a testimony, right? But I think oftentimes when we think of our testimony, we think of that point in time where we accepted Christ. We think of that moment where we made the conscious decision to invite Jesus into our hearts. While that's an extremely important moment, it's a vital part of our story, I've come to learn that, that people care far more about what God is doing in my life right now than they do about what God did in my life 20 years ago. But when I'm focused, when I'm caught up on focusing on the way things were, or hoping that I get to this point in the future, I'm sick and tired of my current circumstances, I miss out on the present blessings, and so I miss all the opportunities I have to tell people about what God is doing in my life. Because people ask me, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I'm sick of this. I wish things would go back the way they were. You know, I just can't wait till we're past this moment, you know. Instead, I'd be saying, you know what? God is doing this, or God did that, or God showed me this, or I'm missing all those opportunities. Discontentment causes us to miss out on God's present blessings and opportunities. And discontentment robs us of any chance of thriving. Discontentment robs us of any chance of knowing rest or peace because we're constantly striving for contentment from all the wrong sources. True lasting contentment only comes from God. So what do we have to do? What do we have to do to experience true lasting contentment? At least so much as it's possible on this side of heaven to know true lasting contentment. Listen, we have to do only one thing. There's only one thing we have to do. And Solomon, he learned this. At the end of his life, as he's looking back, he learned this amazing lesson from God. It took a lot of missteps, took a lot of mistakes on his part, but God in his grace and his patience stayed with Solomon. And this is what Solomon writes. At the end of Ecclesiastes, Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 13, Solomon writes this. says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon says, everything else was striving after wind. There was nothing under the sun that was worth my time. This is it. Fear God, keep his commandments. Nothing else compares to that. Nothing else matters compared to this. And listen, if we don't want to listen to King Solomon, fine. Let's at least listen to King Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. To obey these scriptures is simply to focus on God more than we focus on anything else. That's it. We don't need to overcomplicate this. This isn't rocket science that we're talking about here. How do we experience true lasting contentment? We focus on God 
more than anything else. And God will help us maintain a perspective that is centered on him and what he wants for us. If we do that, we'll reach a point where we can say, God is enough for me. God is enough for me. And when we get to this point where this statement is true, we will thrive. We will thrive. We will know peace and we will know rest. When we can say, not some point in the past, that's not what I need. Not some point in the future, it's not what I need. Right now, God is enough for me. We're going to close our time together with a responsive reading. So I'm going to share a statement. And as, as the gathered body, you can do this at home too. You can join us from home. As the gathered body, you're going to reply in unison with this statement yourself. Here's the statement you're going to say. We're going to practice. Ready? It would have been enough for us. Now go ahead and say it with it would have been enough for us. It'll be on screen, so you have to memorize this. This is not some audition. The stand doesn't want to stay up. So, okay, it's going to be on screen, but it would have been enough for us. The statements I share, they build on one another. And what I want you to do, not just think about the statement, but, but think about the meaning behind the statement you're responding with. And wrestle in your heart, is it really true in my life? Would what I see on the screen, what I'm hearing, would that have been enough for me. And this build, this, is, this, this comes from an ancient Hebrew prayer. It's so powerful. Let's go ahead and do this. Words should be on the screen. If we knew Jesus as Savior, but were never promised eternal life. If we knew Jesus as Savior, were promised eternal life, but never knew that he experienced our pain. If we knew Jesus as Savior, were promised eternal life, knew that he experienced our pain, but were never given his words and strength. If we knew Jesus as Savior, we were promised eternal life. We knew that he experienced our pain. We were given his words and strength, but never knew him as friend. If we knew Jesus as Savior, were promised eternal life, knew that he experienced our pain, were given his words and strength, knew him as friend, but never had a chance to have a spiritual family. But we do, and he did. Think about that. Nothing this world offers us compares to this. If we're looking to the world, if we're looking to the past, we're looking to the future, nothing will ever be enough for us. If we focus on God, then God is enough for us. So let me ask you, let me close with two questions. One, have you accepted God into your life? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? That's the most important thing you could ever do. If you haven't invited God in, that's the first step to true lasting attainment. That's the first step to saying, God, you're enough for me. Nothing else that I've strived for in the world compares to you. And all you have to do, if that's you, you just simply say yes to Jesus. That's all you have to do. For everyone else, for all of us, is God enough for you? Is he enough? Let's pray. Lord God, our minds just can't fathom all that you've done for us. Our mind just can't fathom it. We're so thankful, Lord, 
for all the ways you pour out your blessing, your grace, your kindness, for all the ways you're patient, for all the ways you go before us, you go behind us, you walk in step with us, Lord, all the ways you protect us and guide us. And God, you want the fullest life possible for us. Help us, Lord, to stop looking everywhere else. Help us, Lord, to, to, to stop going through life restless and discontent because we're, we're looking to the past or the future or to, to whatever the world says we need. Instead, let us focus on you because you are enough for us. And Lord God, if there's anyone here today who's not invited you into their heart, I pray, Lord, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. That today they would make that decision to, to set themselves aside, set everything they thought they knew aside and simply say yes to you then see where you take me, Lord. Oh God, we love you. We give you praise. And we pray this in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen.